Hi, I'm Suzanne Story, and this is Love in the Time of COVID-19. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Love in the Time of COVID-19. We will talk about how relationships are changing during this time, but it's more about how we react to those changes. Please take a moment for yourself, breathe, and enjoy the podcast. On March 27th, as the U.S. topped 100,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19, Donald Trump stood at the lectern of the White House press briefing room and was asked what he'd say about the pandemic to a child. Amid a meandering answer, Trump remarked, you can call it a germ, you can call it a flu, you can call it a virus. You know, you can call it many different names. I'm not sure anybody even knows what it is. And that was neither the most consequential statement from the White House, nor the most egregious. But it was perhaps the most ironic. In a pandemic characterized by extreme uncertainty, one of the few things experts know for sure is the identity of the pathogen responsible, a virus called SARS-CoV-2 that is closely related to the original SARS virus, Both are members of the coronavirus family, which is entirely distinct from the family that includes influenza viruses. Scientists know the shape of the proteins on the new coronavirus's surface down to the position of the individual atoms. Give me a couple of hours and I can do a dramatic reading of its entire genome. But much else about the pandemic is still maddeningly unclear. Why do some people get really sick, but others do not? Are the models too optimistic or are they too pessimistic? Exactly how transmissible and deadly is the virus? How many people have actually been infected? How long must social restrictions go on for? Why are there so many questions still unanswered? The confusion partly arises from the pandemic scale and pace. Worldwide, at least 3.1 million people have been infected in less than four months. Economies have nosedived, societies have paused. In most people's living memory, no crisis has caused so much upheaval so broadly and so quickly. We've never faced a pandemic like this before, so we don't know what is likely to happen or what would have happened, says Zoe McLaren, a health policy professor at the University of Maryland at Baltimore County. That makes it even more difficult in terms of the uncertainty. But beyond its vast scope, there are some other reasons the pandemic continues to be so befuddling. Let's take a look at the virus. Because coronavirus wasn't a part of the popular lexicon until SARS-CoV-2 ran amok this year, earlier instances of the term is kind of readily misconstrued. When people learned about a meeting in which global leaders role-played through the fictional coronavirus pandemic, some wrongly argued that the actual pandemic had been planned. When people noticed mentions of human coronavirus on old cleaning products, some wrongly assumed that the manufacturers had somehow received advanced warning. There isn't just one coronavirus. Besides the SARS-CoV-2, six others are known to infect humans. Four are mild and common, causing a third of colds, 
while two are rare but severe, causing MERS and the original SARS. But scientists have also identified about 500 other coronaviruses among China's many, many bat species. There will be more. I think it's safe to say tens of thousands, says Peter Dazak of the Eco Health Alliance, who has led that work. Laboratory experiments show that some of these viruses could potentially infect humans. SARS-CoV-2 likely came from a bat as well. It seems unlikely that random bat viruses should somehow jump into a susceptible human. But when you consider millions of people in regular contact with millions of bats, which carry tens of thousands of new viruses, vanishingly improbable events become probable ones. In 2015, Dazak's team found that 3% of people from four Chinese villages that were close to bat caves had antibodies that indicated a previous encounter with SARS-like coronaviruses. Bats fly out every night over their houses. Some of them shelter from the rain in caves or collect guano for fertilizer, Dazak says. If you extrapolate up to the rural populations across the region where the bats that carry these viruses live, you're talking 1 million to 7 million people a year exposed. Most of these infections likely go nowhere, and it takes just one to trigger an epidemic. Once that happens, uncertainties abound as scientists race to characterize all of these new pathogens. The task is always hard, but especially so when the pathogen is a coronavirus. They're very hard to work with, they don't grow very well in cell cultures, and it's been very hard to get funding, says Vinette Menagerie of the University of Texas Medical Branch. He is just one of the few dozen virologists in the world who specialize in coronaviruses, which have attracted comparatively little attention compared to the more prominent threats like the flu. The field swelled slightly after the SARS epidemic of 2003, but then shrunk as interest and funding dwindled. It wasn't till MERS came along in 2012 that I even thought I could have an academic career on coronaviruses, Menachery says. The tight group of coronavirologists is now racing to make up for years of absent research, a tall order in the middle of a pandemic. We're working as hard as possible, says Lisa Grolinski, a virologist of the University of North Carolina. Our space is so intermingled that we can't socially distance among ourselves very much. One small mercy, she notes, is that the SARS-CoV-2 isn't changing dramatically. Scientists are tracking its evolution in real time, and despite some hype about the existence of different strains, the virologists I've spoken with largely feel that the virus is changing at a steady and predictable pace. There are no signs of an alarming mutation we need to be worried about, Grolinski said. For now, the world is facing just one threat, but that threat can manifest in many ways. Let's talk about the disease itself. SARS-CoV-2 is a virus. COVID-19 is the disease that it causes. The two are not the same. The disease arises from a combination of the virus and the person who it infects and the society that the person belongs to. Some people who become infective never show any symptoms. Others become so ill they need ventilators. Early Chinese data suggested that several of the fatal illnesses occurred mostly in the elderly, but in the U.S., and especially in the South, many middle-aged adults have been hospitalized, perhaps because they're more likely to have other chronic illnesses. The virus might vary a little around the world, but the disease varies a lot. This explains why some of the most important stats about the coronavirus have been hard to pin down. Estimates of the case fatality rate Okay, now this is the CFR, the case fatality rate. 
Remember that. The proportion of diagnosed people who die have ranged from 0.1% to 15%. It's frustrating to not have a firm number, but it's also unrealistic to expect one. The CFR's denominator, total cases, depends on how thoroughly the country tests its populations. Its numerator, which is total deaths, depends on the spread of the ages within the population, the prevalence of pre-existing illnesses, how far people live from hospitals, and how well-staffed or how well-equipped those hospitals are. These factors vary among countries, among states, among cities, and the CFR will vary as well. The variability of COVID-19 is also perplexing doctors. The disease seems to wreak havoc, not only on lungs and airways, but also on hearts, blood vessels, kidneys, guts, and nervous systems. It's not clear if the virus is directly attacking these organisms, if the damage stems from a body-wide overreaction of the immune system, if other organisms are suffering from the side effects of the treatments, or if they're failing due to prolonged stays on ventilators. Past coronavirus epidemics offer limited clues because they are so contained. Worldwide, only 10,600 or so people were ever diagnosed with SARS or MERS combined, which is less than the number of COVID-19 cases from Staten Island alone. For new diseases, we don't see 100 to 200 patients a week. It usually takes a whole career, says Megan Coffey, an infectious disease doctor at NYU Langenth Health. And if you see enough cases of other diseases, you'll see unusual things. During the flu pandemic of 2009, for example, doctors documented heart, kidney, and neurological problems. I was pregnant with our youngest in 2009, and I remember, on top of it being a very stressful pregnancy, all of the doctors telling me and demanding that all of us get our flu shots because it was going to be the very memorable year for the flu. Turns out it was a mini pandemic that year, and it was called the 2009 swine flu epidemic. I also remember being very scared of the pregnancy that year, but not too scared of the swine flu. Let's talk a little bit about the research. Since the pandemic began, scientists have published more than 7,500 papers on COVID-19 alone. But despite this deluge, we haven't seen a lot of huge plot twists, says Carl Bergstrom, an epidemiologist and sociologist of science at the University of Washington. The most important, he says, was the realization that people can spread the virus before showing any symptoms. But even that insight was slow to dawn. A flawed German study hinted at it in early February, but scientific opinion shifted only after many lines of evidence emerged, including case reports, models showing that most infections are undocumented, and studies indicated that viral levels peak as symptoms appear. This is how the science actually works. It's less the parade of decisive blockbuster discoveries that the press often portrays, and more of a slow, erratic stumble toward ever-lessening uncertainty. For example, Stanford University researchers recently made headlines after testing 3,300 volunteers from Santa Clara County for antibodies against the new coronavirus. The team concluded that 2.5 to 4.2 percent of people have already been infected, a proportion much higher than the official count suggests. This, the authors claimed, means that the virus is less deadly than suspected and that severe lockdowns may be overreactions. But other scientists, including statisticians, virologists, and disease ecologists, have criticized the study's methods and the team's conclusions. One could write a long article assessing the Santa Clara study alone, 
but that would defeat the point. The individual pieces of research are extremely unlikely to single-handedly upend what we know about COVID-19. About 30 similar surveys have also been released. These and others to come could collectively reveal how many Americans have been infected. Even then, they would have been weighed against the other evidence, including accounts from doctors and nurses in New York or Lombardy, Italy, which clearly shows that SARS-CoV-2 can crush healthcare systems. The precise magnitude of the virus's fatality rate is a matter of academic debate. In reality, of what it can do to hospitals is not. The scientific discussion of the Santa Clara study might seem ferocious to an outsider, but it's fairly typical for academia. Yet such debates might once have played out over months, now they're occurring over days, and it's in full public view. Epidemiologists who are used to interacting with only their peers are racking up followers on Twitter. They also suddenly have been thrust into political disputes. People from partisan media outlets find this stuff and use a single study as a cudgel to beat the other side, Bergstrom says. The climate change people are used to it but we epidemiologists are not. That brings me to our relationship we have with Facebook and Twitter. We open up our Facebook pages every morning, maybe even before we emerge from our covers, and we develop opinions all on our own from the Twitter research we have done in a matter of minutes. We decide which news and case studies to follow based on what we want to believe, our political nature, and what our friends are saying. In other words, we develop our own conclusions based not on exact science, but generally because of a snapshot of what we might encounter at 7 o'clock in the morning, generally before we've even had our first cup of joe. Then we really ramp up during the day because someone has posted a great meme about how the left or how the right is correct and maybe how understandable, pretty, clear, or funny the meme is. I'm pretty sure Facebook contributed to the toilet paper and baking yeast crisis that we are currently finding our in. I also think that it's funny how so many people are playing the 10-year challenge of photos, but also what's your dog's name, or what's your mom's maiden name, or maybe your favorite pet's name. Like, no one is going to use that info to hack into anyone's Bank of America account. I just shake my head daily about the thick-headedness of some of the people I follow on Facebook. I will readily admit to you that there are people I have not unfriended but definitely unfollowed throughout this political year and this coronavirus crisis. And they're definitely folks that are still my friends, but I no longer allow them to see what I post daily because I would rather not have them barrage my page with their completely idiotic opinions. Should I defriend them? Yes, probably. But frankly, most I would see at a family or school reunion, and I would have to explain to them how my Facebook apparently crashed, and I have no idea how Facebook or Twitter or Instagram unwittingly dropped so many of my friends. Again, shaking my head. I will talk about experts, the messaging, and information right after this. Being alone during these times can be hard, so why be alone? Bastrop County Animal Shelter in Bastrop, Texas has many lovable cats and dogs waiting on their forever home. Remember, social distancing is important, but so are our furry friends. So visit their website at bcastfriends.org. That's B-C-A-S friends.org. Your new best friend is waiting for you. That 
really brings me to the experts. And I admit, I have not followed or friended any coronavirus experts in the last few months. Or ever, really. Expertise is not just about knowledge, but also about the capacity to spot errors. The rest of us are more likely to fall into the former group than the latter. We hunger for information, but lack the know-how to evaluate it or the sources that provide it. A lack of expertise becomes problematic when it's combined with extreme overconfidence. The idea that there are no experts is overly glib. The issue is that modern expertise tends to be deep but narrow. Even with epidemiology, someone who studies infectious diseases knows more about epidemics than, say, someone who studies nutrition. But pandemics demand both depth and breadth of expertise. On to the messaging. In the early months of the pandemic, while the coronavirus blazed through China, even veteran disease experts seemed to misjudge the odds that the epidemic would become a full-blown pandemic. On January 26, 2020, Dr. Anthony Fauci himself said the virus posted a very, very low risk to the United States and was a concern for public health officials, but not the public. Many journalists offered similar reassurances and frequently compared the coronavirus threat to the allegedly greater danger of flu. Some officials may have been motivated to avoid disproportionate panic of the kind that gripped the U.S. during the Ebola outbreak of 2014. The instinct to be calm and measured is laudable until it isn't. The World Health Organization has also come under fire for hewing too closely to China's position in January and being too slow to confirm that the coronavirus was spreading among people or to finally describe the situation as a pandemic. These issues should not detract from all that the WHO has done to contain the crisis, nor should they provide cover for leaders who still failed to prepare their countries after the risk became clearer and clearer, and after being exhorted to act aggressively and swiftly by, well, the WHO. But the agency's missteps do offer lessons for communicating in an emergency. In mid-January, it sent a now-infamous tweet describing no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission of the novel coronavirus without clearly discussing other important details. The same could be said of the White House and other U.S. officials who repeatedly assured Americans in January, February, and yes, even March, that their risk was low. In late February, Nancy Messonnier, the respiratory disease chief of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, broke ranks and told Americans that community spread of the virus within the United States was a question of when, not if. And remember, she said this in late February. Messonnier urged the nation to prepare for possible school closures, loss of work, disruption to everyday life that may be severe, and the expectation that this could be very bad. The next day, Trump asserted that cases were going to be down to close to zero. The day after, the CDC director, Robert Redfield, reiterated that the risk is very low and said that Messonnier could have been more articulate. Shortly after, Redfield said the American people need to go on with their normal lives. Of late, CDC officials, who were constant authoritative voices during the past epidemics, have mostly kept their mouths shut. On to the information. As the reality of the pandemic becomes clearer, the partisan gap is rapidly closing. But as time passes, misinformation, which refers to misleading stories that are circulated in good faith, will give way to disinformation 
falsehoods deliberately seeded to leverage the disaster for political power. Amid the psychological looming of fear and uncertainty, conspiracy theories are germinating like weeds. The daily briefings from the White House have only exacerbated the confusion. Good or bad, or however you might feel about them, is your business. But I have found it a lot more comforting to just turn off the briefings and go outside and smell the flowers growing in my backyard. It seems that I'm a nicer mom, wife, and friend because of that little change I decided to do all on my own. My favorite tag line remains, wash your hands, give me six, and love the ones closest to you because they're the ones that will be ultimately getting you through this tough time of self-distancing. The numbers as of today, May 22nd, 2020, should alarm you but not defeat you. In the U.S., there have been 1,611,297 confirmed cases and 95,213 deaths. In my county in Texas, there have only been nine confirmed cases and one confirmed death. Of course, all of these numbers need to be taken seriously and also to be taken as they're meant to be taken. Comparing population size, population density, and outbreak centers, as well as hospitalizations. I will talk to you about the relationship that we're having with one another and how we're reacting to those relationships, as well as the relationship with the truth right after this. The relationship that we have with one another is what's going to sustain us through this crisis. If someone wants to wear a mask, don't smirk at them from the car next door to you while you're both getting takeout, mainly because you've not walked a mile in that other person's shoes. If someone does not want to wear a mask, don't chastise them because whatever reason you might have to chastise them. If someone wants to get too close to you, it's not out of unwitting behavior, but probably because of their craving for humanoid contact. If someone wants to sing in church, let them. Just maybe sit away from them if you have a problem with it. They will probably realize pretty quickly that they might have a hard time carrying the weight of the choir on their own and decide that just humming along with their mouth closed is the thing to do for the time being. If you don't want to sing in church, don't. But don't overthink it. If singing in church makes you terribly uncomfortable, just stay in your PJs on Sunday morning and tune into your favorite Facebook Live church group. Any way you slice it, it's exactly what is right and correct for you. My millennial daughter constantly reminds me, I'll do me and you do you. Be nice to one another and kindness makes the world go round. But so does being smart about things. So in a nutshell, be smart, be kind, and most importantly, be you. Thank you to Ed Young and The Atlantic for doing the bulk of the research and writing in this podcast. Anchor Podcasting and Spotify brings you great podcasts like the Sleep Meditation Podcast. I'm Suzanne Story, and this has been Love in the Time of COVID-19, brought to you by the studios of North Fork of Red River, a Texas-based studio. Mm-hmm.